Hello, and welcome to In Person, brought to you by Bizabo. In each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Brandon Raffles. In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Steve Rondazzo, founder and president of Promotion Incorporated, an award-winning experiential marketing agency located in St. Louis, Missouri. Since 1995, Promotion has helped B2B and B2C brands and agency partners drive business outcomes with experiential campaigns. With over 30 years of experience in the industry, Steve has worked with clients like the Walt Disney Company, Hewlett-Packard, Anheuser-Busch, Citgo, MBA, and many other great organizations. For years, Steve has been an outspoken advocate of live experiences, speaking at various events and contributing articles to various publications on the subject. Recently, Steve published a book entitled Brand Experiences, Building Connections in a Digitally Cluttered World. Having read the book myself, I can say that it is a thoughtful exploration into the power of experiential. During our conversation, we talked about Steve's journey through the industry, his advice for brands trying to break through not only the digital clutter, but also the event clutter, measuring return on emotion, and how to charge your brand with purpose. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of In Person. I am so excited to welcome Steve Randazzo to the show today. Steve, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Brandon, thanks for having me. I met Steve through John Hyman, who was a previous guest on the show. And John mentioned Steve. He mentioned Steve that had recently written this book on brand experiences with a big focus on experiential and events. And I thought to myself, I want to learn more about this guy. So I was so pleased when John was able to connect us over at Experiential Marketing Summit way back then. You're kind enough to send over a copy of the book, which I got to read through. So really excited to speak a little bit more about what's going on at ProMotion and also your book. That sounds great. All right. So I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Is it ProMotion or is it Promotion? Well, if there's a little bit of space between the O and the M between pro and motion, then you're saying it right. So it is two okay, words perfect. and it is pro motion. Pause as long as you'd like. <laughs> you know, 20, 24 years ago, I realized that it's as tough to name your company as it is to name your kids. I still have the sheets. I probably have five or six handwritten sheets front and back on potential names and I kept on saying, I want one word that says what we do. And I was like, promotion. And I was like, okay, I can't, it's too common of a word. We can't own that. And so <laughs> I'm like, all right, then let's make it two words. <laughs> so that's what we did. And that's, it's stuck. And, you know, hopefully it's been a good thing because we've had a nice ride over the last 24 years. <laughs> that's great. And, you know, promotion is this experiential marketing company. You've worked with the likes of the Walt Disney Company. Hewlett-Packard, Anheuser-Busch, Citgo, NBA, and a lot of other really big brands. So to set the stage for today's conversation, could you tell us a little bit more about ProMotion and what you all are up to? Sure. Well, when, when we started the company in 95, we were an event marketing company because experiential really hadn't come to life yet. So in simple terms, we're an event or an experience company, and we design experience that bring brands to life. You know, we're storytellers. Almost every single program we have generates word of mouth. So it's really important for us to tell a great story, get people to talk about us, talk about our brands that, that we represent, 
And based on a lot of studies, word of mouth is is really important out there. And, and consumers believe word of mouth over marketing from brands. So, you know, we try and generate aha moments that consumers can get excited about and then share with with friends and family, which extends the reach of our program. So again, simplistically, we design experiences, we're storytellers, and we generate word of mouth. That's great. So what does your day-to-day look like as the founder and the president of ProMotion? Well, I think one of the reasons why I was attracted to this industry is every day is different. You know, I always say we either have an extra chip on our brain or we're missing a chip on our brain because we love variety and we love a challenge and we love, you know, we always get excited when we're in controlled chaos. You know, like the busier busier we are, the more excited we are. So in the more challenged we are and the more fulfilling it is for us. And I think that pretty much sums up most people in the agency world. But I, you know, I guess in a normal day, I spend the first couple hours reading. I'm trying to look at trends. I'm looking at articles. I'm trying to see what other brands are doing. I'm trying to look at what other agencies are doing. So I'm just absorbing content usually for the first couple hours of the day. I always check in in the morning with my account team and, you know, to see what's going on, see what happened, you know, the, the day before with events or see what's going on in, in you know, our, our team's travels or whatever it happens to be. I'm very involved in the day-to-day of, of what our company does. And, and it's really what excites me and what I really enjoy. We were much bigger at, at another time in our, in our history. And I just realized that it wasn't as much fun for me because I, it, we were too big for me to really make an impact on every piece of business that we had. So we made a decision to only work with 10 clients at a time. And that's kind of a magic number that, you know, it's easier for me to be able to be involved in each piece of those business. So I also spent a lot of time, probably almost half my time, just in the biz dev area of our agency. And, you know, either I'm connecting with potential prospects on LinkedIn or I'm writing an article or, or you know, doing something that gets us more awareness in our industry. So we promote on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook on a daily basis. So we either have some kind of content that we've produced or someone else's content that they produced that we would put out there into the uh, into the digital world. Sure. And I, I think it's really interesting what you said about only working with 10 companies, 10 brands at a time. Do you think that's something that other agencies on the whole are doing? Or in your experience so far, it's it's a bit rarer. Yeah, I don't know anybody else who it really limited. It's not 10 brands, it's 10 companies. So we may have a company that have multiple brands, but I don't know if anybody's doing this. You know, most agencies are just trying to grow and that's their number one focus. And our number one focus is we're trying to grow our brands. You know, I would be extremely happy with the same 10 brands every year, year in and year out that we continue to grow and have great results with. That would be wonderful. Unfortunately, you know, some brands just their life cycle you know, maybe they they do a program with us for two to five or ten years, and but then that life cycle's over, and they're they're on to something else, or they come to us. You know, like Disney, we haven't done a program probably in a couple of years with them, but we've done so many different projects with them over the past ten or twelve years. They basically come to us for for a specific type of activation. It's usually their national tours. And so maybe we don't work with them every year, but we, you know, we continue to work with them in nice cadence. So maybe it's because we're 24 years old and we're, you know, we feel we're just really established. We don't need, you know, I, 
I remember an interview back in 90, 1996, guy said, you know, hey, so, you know, is the sky the limit? And I'm saying, no. I said, we're, we've never, I didn't build this company, or I didn't create this company to be the biggest agency out there. I only want to be the best. So having a hundred million in billings is not interesting to me. Again, I become an admin guy. That's no fun. I didn't get in this industry to, to be an admin guy. Yes, admin's a, a, a part of what I do every day, but I got in this business to engage our clients and get out in the field and see our teams and and see how we're engaging consumers or customers in a B2B world. That's what excites me. I mean, I love getting on an airplane, going out in the field and seeing our programs in action. I don't want to sit back here in my office and look at a you know a flat screen all day. So it's important to me that our clients are growing. And if our clients grow, then we're going to be fine. That's great. And what would you say when you're working with these really big brands? If you could tell us a little bit about the creative process that goes into pulling off a campaign and, and what that typical process looks like between promotion and the customer. Well, I, I think we're really inquisitive. So we're going to ask a lot of questions. So we do, we have this proprietary discovery process that we take every prospect or client through. So we're trying to get as much information as we possibly can. So if we get an RFP, the first thing we say is, you know, hey, we, we want to get on a, at least an hour and a half call with you because, you know, we want to literally dissect what you're trying to do because we're not going to go after a new piece of business unless we know we can win it. So we turn down a lot of RFPs simply because we don't want to be on that cattle call. We don't want to be one of seven agencies who are fighting for a piece of business. We want to build a relationship. We want to understand the brand and we want to bring a program that we know that'll be successful. So we start with a lot of questions and a lot of discovery. And, and at the same time, we're getting that information from the prospect. We're also gathering information that we can get out on the internet. So we gather as much information as we possibly can. We put a brief together that says, here's what we think we know. This is what we understand. And here's their problem. How do we solve it? And usually, you know, depending on the, the scope of the program, we'll have two or three different brainstorming sessions. And, you know, maybe the first one was with everybody here. And then we break it down to smaller groups based on some of the ideas. And then we start building the deck and we, you know, we, we start talking about how to package this and what's important. And sometimes what they ask for is not what we think they need. So we'll go back to the, to the prospect and say, Hey, I know you've asked for this, but we don't believe that's the right answer. Are you open to something else? And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they don't. And, you know, we just react based on that. But that whole creative process is, is something that has morphed over time. We've, we've learned so much. We've really figured out kind of what we're really, really good at and things that we just let go because it's fun to work on, on new opportunities, but it also takes a lot of time and energy and resources. So we only go after programs that we know we can win. Cool. So what's one of the coolest campaigns you've ever pulled off? <laughs> Okay, so the next question after this is going to be, which kid is your favorite? Is it your daughter or your son? <laughs> um, <laughs> we've done a lot of fun stuff. For 14 years, we did a lot of really cool sports marketing programs with Anheuser-Busch. You know, they were our first client. You know, we, we did a lot of really cool stuff with them. You know, that was neat to, you know, go to a PGA event or go to a NASCAR event or, or go to the NFL event or, you know, whatever it happened to be. You know, I mentioned Disney earlier. You know, the Disney stuff. God, I love working with Disney. I mean, they have so many fanatics, you know, and that's what we strive with all of our programs to build fanatics for our clients. So the Disney programs are cool because 
Disney people are fanatics. I mean, they show up at our events dressed <laughs> as Disney characters. Their kids are all dressed up. And, you know, that's cool. That, you know, that stuff is is cool. So we've done a lot of fun stuff. I think ultimately my favorite programs are the programs that work, the programs that drive huge results. And our clients, you know, get all these accolades. And we always say we want our clients to be rock stars and, and you know, in their companies. And, and that's what we strive for, which each program is over-delivering so our clients become rock stars. And when they walk into say, hey, we spent X dollars and here's what we got back. Their boss is really excited about it and they get that money again. So there's a lot of cool programs. My favorite are the ones that, uh, like I said, that really deliver. Cool. So uh, shout out to, I guess, Anheuser-Busch there being one of your first clients that really helped promotion take off and grow. Yeah. That was back in the pre-InBev days when all their marketing was here in St. Louis. And you know, I still remember that day where they made a phone call and said, hey, can you come down? We want to talk to you about an opportunity. And I still remember the drive down there and I was nervous. And you know, I'm 31 years old. I just started my agency and pulling up and seeing the big Budweiser sign and go, you know, hey, this is big time. This is this is what you've always wanted to do. Go make it happen. So, you know, about a month later, we walked out with our first project. So that was about six months into the life of the company, but about a month after our first meeting. And like I said, we did a lot of really fun stuff. A really a lot of great people who used to work there, and it was a lot of fun. They were they were really good to the uh, agency world here in St. Louis. Wow. Okay, so for the next uh, section of our conversation, mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about your book, Brand Experiences. So again, I read it. I thought it was a really great overview of different ways that brands can think about experiential. There are a lot of great examples and even uh, some some tactics when it comes to implementing experiential. And one through line that really stood out is this emphasis on active versus passive campaigns. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who maybe haven't yet started to read the book, how would you define an active campaign and what does it look like in action? Sure. So active in our world is everything that's face-to-face. So it's a two-way communication. It's an opportunity to demonstrate in a live environment. You have give and take where you can tell a consumer or a customer of, our, of one of our clients, you tell them something, they can ask questions. It's a great two-way dialogue. The passive, passive something is, is what we see on all our flat screens, whether it's our computer or our tablets or our phones. Those are passive. Those run by us. I can interact with it, but it's it's not like a live engagement. So we're able to tell a story and see the whole buyer's journey in an active program. But in a passive program, there's little snippets. You get to tell them a little bit about this, a little bit about that, a little bit about this, a little bit about that. And you hope that the story is authentic and you hope that story is cohesive. So active is very much... It's usually a controlled environment. It's human to human. It's an opportunity to tell the brand story in a live human to human way. And then the passive is the analogy I always give anytime you're talking about digital or social media is it's so crowded these days and messages are just flying by us. It's like if you go stand on a highway on an overpass and you watch cars fly by. That's kind of what Twitter's like to me. That's kind of what Facebook's like to me. It's what Instagram's like to me. You're just you're just clicking through. Unless it's something you're really, really passionate about, you don't stop and you don't really immerse yourself. 
in an active opportunity, it's an opportunity to get an emotional connection and to have then those people who, who you create an aha moment, you get an emotional connection that then they share via word of mouth or in some other way to extend your reach. Got it. So say I am a B2B marketing executive that's putting together this big integrated marketing campaign. What are some ways that I can incorporate active touch points or what are some active channels that I should think about? Well, you know, the interesting thing I, today, I don't think there's a lot of difference between B2B and B2C. On okay. both of them, you're trying to engage a human being. So we're starting to use H to H, you know, human to human in how we speak and how we're communicating about our brand. We love B2B programs. You get to see the, the whole buyer's journey. You can see the buyer going from interest and awareness to understanding through this aha moment that we would create to now purchase intent. And you can see that all in 30 or 45 minutes in a B2B program that, you know, we do programs that are kind of like, we just kind of coined it a reverse trade show. So instead of going to trade show and hoping people show up, you take the trade show directly to the parking lot of your customer's customer, and you put on a show there. And that way their executives just come out of their out of their offices and, and engage your brand and your products. Just like with B2C, where's the best place to engage you know, how do you, how do you pick that person when he or she is in the right frame of mind? You know, what's important to them in this engagement? What problems and what pains do they currently have? And what are their needs at this time? You know, it's really no different from a B2B, B2B and B2C is, again, it's just H to H. You know, you're, you're trying to engage people and you're trying to educate them and show them why your client's brand is the right brand for them and how it solves various problems for them. Okay. So that totally makes sense. You know, that's, that's something that I've been hearing more and more is that, that intersection of B2C and B2B. And you often hear, say, if we, if we go to an event like Experiential Marketing Summit, some of the, the great leaders in events right now are talking about, we're, we're really starting to, as a B2B organization, borrowing from B2C more. And so, yeah, I see how that, that line is beginning to blur. Yeah, the other thing I want to add to that is the decisions are becoming emotional in the B2B world. Like They've been emotional. Almost all brands on a B2C standpoint are looking for emotional connection. In, in the past, B2B has always been, well, you know, who has the best product, the best price? It's a business decision. Decisions are becoming more emotional in the B2B world. You know, there's products that are solving problems that are huge problems for customers. And it does become emotional. It's like, oh my gosh, it's, yes, this helps us from a business standpoint, but you can make emotional connections in the B2B world these days. And I don't know if that was always possible. And maybe that's why, or one of the reasons at least, that I think the B2B sector is the fastest growing area of our industry. I know we get more hits today about B2B than we did five years ago. I think, you know, the ROI seems so much cleaner. Return on emotion is so much cleaner. The opportunity to build a better relationship with more people within, you know, your, your target organization is there's a much better opportunity to do that. And, you know, let's face it, for a lot of brands and a lot of industries, 
trade shows just aren't hitting it anymore. I know there's some places like I know CES is still a great place to go, and there's other trade shows that are really great, but there's a there's a ton of them that are are not doing what they did ten or fifteen years ago. And the customers who are coming to us in the B two B world are saying, you know, I just just heard this earlier this summer. We used to do thirty two trade shows, and now we cut it down to seven. And I think John John Hyman actually was talking about this too at Sprint. They've cut down the number of trade shows because back in the day, that's what you did. And now it becomes status quo marketing and, and not every trade show works. So you cut it out and you either lose that budget and put it somewhere else or you activate that budget in, in some other way. So we're getting a lot of traction with this reverse trade show um, where it's a lot, a lot more pro- proactive. It's a lot more on purpose and it, it allows our customer to control more th- more things than they control in a trade show environment. Definitely. Yeah, that's something I've heard a lot is is taking that budget that would typically spent on, say, a lot of events that are, you know, where, where someone is sponsoring or they're exhibiting, and instead funneling that towards hosted events where uh, an organization is able to really craft the experience and, and, and set the terms of the engagement. Yeah, I agree that it's... It, it, it and you know I think that's one of the reasons why it's growing in our industry because they see the value. I had a VP of sales say to me about two weeks ago, "When is it not a good idea to be face to face with your customer, telling your story and showing your products?" From his standpoint, he wants more and more of that engagement. So this reverse trade show that we do, it, it hits all his buttons. So one of the things we're talking about here is the importance of demonstrating ROI and how that's it's become more important and also a little bit easier. I'm sure a number of factors there, but this is something that you touch on in the book as well, is measuring event ROI. What do you think most companies get wrong when they're attempting to measure event ROI? I think most companies just look at hard facts. So they look at a consumable brand. They're looking at impressions they're looking at coupon redemption they're looking if we're at the store they're looking at you know how many units did we move i think what they're missing out is that emotional side there's a return on emotion and there's a return on engagement that i think it is it's the soft side of it but i think it's really important when a consumer or a customer walks away you want to make sure that you understand how you want them to think how you want them to feel, what you want them to do. So I think you really need to focus on those three areas because, you know, what do you want them to think? Well, I want them to think now that, you know, my product tastes great and it's better than product X or it's going to make me look better, feel better, sound better, whatever. So there's an emotional side of that. And then, you know, word of mouth comes in there too. And if you can track word of mouth, because again, and I think you guys in your in your 2018 research said something about the consumers are going to believe other consumers more than they're going to believe brands. And I just think that's really important that a return on emotion and return on engagement are two areas that we continue to talk about that brands, you know, think about it, you know, the CFO is some major companies not thinking about return on uh, emotion. They're looking at numbers, looking at hard facts, but I, th- I still think there's a value from a branding side to hit that return on emotion. And, and really, I, I think that think, feel, do is, is, uh, is really important to look at in any program, whether it's B2B or B2C. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things that like, I totally agree with, but it's one of those things that's also, it's kind of challenging, right? Because it's easy to, to point to, to those, those numbers, those data and sort of wipe your brow and say, phew, you know, we're, we're above the line on this activation, this event, whatever it may be. It's, and it's a little harder to go to the, to the CFO or the CEO or the CMO and say, yeah, you know, but the experience. Now that said, speaking to, I mean, speaking to some, some individuals who are involved with some huge, what I would think of as total flagship events, I've heard that this return on emotion is kind of their, their main metric, but I think it just gets a little difficult when it comes to, to measuring it. Do you think, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, sure, like in a post-event survey or something like that, we can ask if people are satisfied with the event experience and, and hope that they'll be promoters of the brand and the event or activation moving forward. Any other thoughts on, on how organizers, event directors, uh, marketing directors can sort of prove the value of this return on emotion? Well, another tactic we've, we've used to, to truly to understand what the consumer sentiment is after an event is we've asked them to shout out on their social that they've been at the event and what they think about the event. And if they do that, you know, we give them a hat or a t-shirt or something. So I, I think that that's fairly authentic information. I don't think anybody's I don't think anybody's saying something great about a brand just to get a hat or a t-shirt or whatever it happens to be. I mean, we did it with Snapple a few years ago. They had a new flavor that we were promoting and, and we just said, you know, hey, if you do a, a 10 second video on on your experience here, you know, we'll give you a, a Snapple t-shirt. And so we learned a lot about what they thought of. We didn't give them any direction. We didn't say, you know, say this or say that, or we'd really like it if you said this. We're just like, hey, tell us about your experience. And we captured all those moments and Snapple was able to utilize those in their social. And I think that tells you a lot about what consumers are thinking about your brand, because I think it's more authentic. It's, it's that, that consumer content that everybody's looking to, to find. You know, we did a program with, with Fiskars a few years ago. Also, they have lawn and garden equipment, and we videotaped people experiencing their products. So we kind of did, you know, the old Pepsi challenge, do these shears and cut a branch and then use the Fiskars shears and cut a branch. And and it was funny because, like, most of the people go like, oh, my God, this, these cut like butter. We capture <laughs> that information. And it's like... You know, sure. we know because we were at Home Depot or Lowe's or somewhere where they could purchase the product, we knew how many we sold that day. But we also knew that we had all these people who had this aha moment that were saying, these are the best shears I've ever used. So, you know, that's some of that subjective information right. that I, I think you can still package up at the end of the day in your ROI and, and show value. 100%. And it's it's something that I think a lot of our, our listeners would agree with is that one of the the greatest joys in planning events is getting to see the the faces on the people who attend them when they're having a great time, when they're experiencing a product and they're loving it, or they're meeting new people, or they just went to a session and they learned a ton and they're they're feeling inspired. And this this makes me think of how in your book you did spend a good amount of time in the in the third part of it talking about the importance of authenticity, of values, and of having the right people to bring those to life. So for our listeners who are still like trying to 
embed this sense of purpose, this sense of authenticity into their brand, what would you recommend? Well, I think the first thing you do is you need to do a, a little bit of an audit specific to your customer base and what's important to them. To try and attach yourself to a cause that doesn't resonate with your your audience is is just a missed opportunity. So there's a lot of brands out there who do a lot of great work. You know, going back to the uh, Experiential Marketing Summit, I don't know if you saw uh, Zappos did one of the keynotes at lunch. And what he spoke about was they knew that pet adoption resonated with their audience. And so I think it's over Black Fridays, what he said, they do pet adoption and it really resonated and, and you know, they got great results and you know, it's something they do every year now. So I think it's really important to find something that your fans are passionate about and then develop a program around that. And I think another thing that's really important is you can't, you can't be self-serving here. You can't do it because it's going to help your brand or it's going to sell your products. You have to do it for the real reason. You have to help that cause and in hundred percent of your focus needs to help that cause. So being authentic and finding something that your fans are going to be passionate about, I think are really important. And there's a lot of great examples, you know, in the book and and out in the marketplace, specific brands are doing that well. So just last couple of questions. Who is an influential marketing or events executive who has had a major influence on your career? Wow. You know, I, I was, uh, I was really lucky. My first two bosses taught me a lot about business, about people, about events. My parents taught me kind of how to be a human being. So, you know, do what you say and then give them a little bit more, you know, over delivering is always better than under delivering. But those, those first two bosses, my first job was with the Kansas City Royals and I learned so much about consumer behavior and, and doing events you know, every day was an event. Every time that the team was in town, we had an event and that's what I was involved in. And then my second job, I was with a regional soft drink company. We were in like 38 states and privately held and Don Schneeberger owned that company. And he was just amazing and taught me a lot about how to run a business and what to look for in a business. And he's, he's still a mentor today to me. So I, you know, I'm fortunate. I try and give back, you know, anybody asks for help. I try and give back because I've had a lot of nice people who've helped me along the way. And I think it's good to give back. So speaking of family, I understand that you have a daughter and son, both of whom have had opportunities to be uh, involved with campaigns at promotion in the past. So why have you vetoed making promotion a family <laughs> revenue stream? Oh, that's funny. Um, well, my daughter Paige just graduated from University of Missouri. She has a finance degree and an entrepreneurship degree, and she's always wanted to be in, be in finance. So that's what that's what she's doing. She moved to Chicago. She's uh, she's doing great in her in her first job. And then Stephen, he's a, a sophomore in college. He's a business degree in entrepreneurship also. So I'm really proud that both kids wanted to learn more about entrepreneurship. And I guess Stephen still has a chance to be in the organization officially, but I've got some friends who have family businesses and they all say, you know, let your kids go out for five years and, you know, work in other industries and do other things before they come into your company. It's a good opportunity for them to kind of see opportunities before they come in there. So, so who knows? 
maybe something will work out for Steven. You know, he's got eight more years, I guess, until that that window would open. Three more years of college and five years mm-hmm. uh, after that. So we'll see. You know, never say never, but uh, sure. but right now that's not that's not the game plan. It just you know we're not working towards an heir apparent. My first baby <laughs> was promotion, and so my my company's older than both of my kids. You know, if I'd started the company maybe ten years ago, maybe there'd be more of an opportunity for them. I really love that that uh, very inquisitive approach that you all have. Say I'm a, an organization and I want to to work with you. What would be a piece of advice that you would have for me? Well, we have a lot of companies who come to us and they know exactly what they want. And we have some that come to us and, and they're like, here's our problem. We have no idea how to solve this. We're looking into experiential as one of those, those ways to solve it. If the prospect is extremely honest and answers questions and really wants to help us learn their business and, and learn what they're up against, that, those are the best relationships. Those are ones we want. The kind we don't like, and maybe this is easier to talk about, is the ones that say, well, we're not going to tell you what our budget is. We're not going to tell you how many agencies you're up against. And we're not going to tell you if there's an incumbent. We're going to give you a bunch of information, but you know you can't you can't ask any questions because we think our, our brief is really great. So it's like, if I was a home builder and you came to me and said, I want to build a house. The first thing I'm going to say is, okay, what kind of house do you want? You're going to say, oh, I want a ranch. Great. Where, where do you want it? I want it in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, great. Um, how big a house? Well, I can't tell you. Well, how much you want to spend? Well, I can't tell you. You know, it's just like, help us be successful. Don't hold back information. I think that's what's really important. And I don't know if if some brands just, you know, their procurement says you can't do this, this, and this, but those are just not, those are not situations we want. We're fortunate, again, because we're 24 years old, we only work with 10 clients. We can hide behind the, I'm sorry, I don't have capacity to to work on your brand. We're full right now if we don't feel that it's an opportunity that we can win because we're not getting the information that we want. I want a client who at the very beginning sees that there's a win-win opportunity for both parties and, and it's based on trust and information and honesty. And, you know, that's the clients that we've surrounded ourselves with. And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the relationships we have. It does. It seems very important uh, and very helpful to be able to have access towards uh, to, to that some of, some of that information you covered. And like you said, you know, there might be reasons why, you know, it might be for some privacy purpose or whatever, whatever the regulation is within that organization. But at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem as uh, as helpful of a way to to go about things. Well, a lot of times they have agencies sign NDA. So that kind of takes all those things out. It's like, okay, we're going to give you some confidential information. You can't share it with anybody. And, you know, we always sign those and, and, you know, in an effort to get better information. So I don't know. I don't know why Sometimes they don't want to give us their budget. I guess they we've heard before, oh, if I give you your budget, you're going to spend it all. Like, well, we usually give good, better, best. So good is going to be below your budget. Better is going to be at your budget. And best is going to maybe be a little bit more than your budget. So, you know, you can, everything we do is scalable too. So, I mean, you can, you can move our, our assumptions around to make it fit your budget. Got it. Okay. So uh, last question today is, if you could give a piece of advice to somebody who is earlier in their career, either on the agency side or the the in-house side uh, when it comes to events, what would that piece of advice be? 
Well, I think it's important to, for anybody in any stage of their career is to keep challenging yourself. Don't get complacent. Don't feel like, oh, this is, you know, this is, I'm safe here. This is exactly what I want to do. I think you always need to be challenging yourself. I think you always need to be looking for growth opportunities. You know, I'm a lifelong learner. This is the first book I've I've written, but I've read hundreds of books. Like I said, I read at the beginning of every day. I try and learn. I think it's just really important in any stage, in every stage of your career is, is to really challenge yourself and learn and learn and learn. And don't be afraid to fail. You know, we've all got tons of failure in our life. You know, if you fail, it's okay. But you got to learn from that failure. To keep making the same mistakes is, is, you know, just means you're not learning from it. So I think a lot of people are taught that failure is bad and it's the best way to learn. You know, I talk to our clients at the end of every year and I, I want to know, I want to know stuff that we're not good at. I want to know stuff that we, they wished we were better at. It's great to hear the good stuff, but you already know that. It, it really doesn't teach you anything. You want to learn from failure and you want to learn you know, how to be better. And I think that's, that's really important. Challenge yourself, keep learning, and failure is okay. Love it. Okay, well, that's our time today, Steve. Thank you so much again for joining us. Brand experiences, I recommend it to anybody either in the industry or looking to learn a little bit more about events uh, and experiential. Thank you. Appreciate it, Brandon. It was really fun. A huge thanks to Steve for joining us today. You know, after our conversation, Steve and I got to talking about the real lack of resources and thought leadership in the events community. We started dreaming up a magical forum where both agencies and in-house event practitioners could trade best practices, a place where even competitors could share lessons learned, a place where unicorns roamed wild and the rivers were made of vegan chocolate. Now, there are definitely some great thought leadership organizations out there. What do you think? Is that magical utopia still far from reality? Or do you think it's been right in front of us the whole entire time? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can drop us a line at in-person-at-fizbo.com or at in-person-podcast on Twitter. Did this episode bring a little bit of magic to your life? If so, help us spread Steve's story by sharing this episode with the world and by leaving a pixie dust-sprinkled review on iTunes. Okay, until next time, I'm Brandon Raffleson, and this has been In Person.